So we are in the midst of chapter 8 of Romans, looking at how we are geared for growth in grace and how the eternal God has a present ministry with us. How it is or why it is that, that when we come to know Christ as our Savior, why we're not just transported like Star Trek from this earth into his presence. You know, there goes another one. He must have accepted Christ as his Savior. What is his ministry now to us? What do we walk in right now in relationship with God, this eternal God in present ministry to us? And we're looking at the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and how he gears us for growth, how he is the one and how it is His ministry to us is laid on the important foundation of walking in relationship with God in the condition of there being no condemnation at all. And so we see this here in verse 1, and we'll we'll walk through uh, stepping back into this context again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There you go. I'm, I, I really don't just keep going back to this verse so we can hear that. But So continuing forward, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Again, our foundation here is no condemnation. And continuing forward, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And then moving into the verses that we looked at last week, for those who live according to the flesh Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And and we've looked at how this is, is depicting those who know Christ as their Savior have their minds set according to the things of the Spirit compared to those who do not know Christ as their Savior who have their minds set on the things of the flesh. In verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the principles that we drew out of this last week, just in review, is that in our internal condition defines our mindset, which reveals our ultimate condition, which is irreconcilable for the unbeliever in their condition of lostness. I was drawn to think this week about the Old Testament event of, of Esau and his birthright. And just kind of give you some background here. We'll actually get into this in Romans 9. Um, 
Abraham was made covenant with by God that he would be the one who, through whom God would send a redeemer and that, that Abraham's descendants would be God's special people that would bring the redeemer. The one, the redeemer being the one who would one day crush the head of the serpent who allowed sin to come into the world. And so, so Abraham was God's covenant the one that God made covenant with, and Abraham's son Isaac, God said that God's, his covenant would pass from Abraham to Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, Esau being the firstborn. And, and by custom, Esau would then receive uh, his birthright from his father Isaac. His birthright, which would mean a greater portion of inheritance, greater honor in the family and in the community. Now, it was prophesied beforehand that Jacob would be the one, actually, that, that God's covenant would pass to. And we'll get into that in Romans 9. But what I was drawn to think about this past week was how Esau, and if you remember the event, is that Esau, out in the wilderness for a time, hunting was famished, was tired, was hungry, was worn out. And he comes back to to their compound where Jacob has cooked a stew. And Esau being famished, being short-sighted, being just focused on the needs of his flesh at that time, comes to Jacob and says, give me some of this stew before I die. And Jacob being pretty sly, pretty slick, says, I'll give you a bowl of stew in exchange for your birthright, in exchange for what you deserve as the oldest child for that larger portion of your your inheritance, for that honor. And Esau, being so short-sighted, being so focused on just the needs of his flesh, thinking, I'm going to die if I don't eat something, says, I don't care. What good is it to me if I die right now? And so he exchanges his birthright for a bowl of soup. And, and from what we understand, the New Testament teaches us that, that Esau is a picture of the person with a mindset on the flesh. Just what are my needs right now? What is my want right now? What is my body craving right now? And we'll come back to that as we move through this. But sadly, we see that Not only in that did he exchange his, his earthly inheritance, his honor as being having the, the birthright of his father, but also in keeping with what God had said, the covenant was come through Isaac, I'm sorry, through Jacob rather than Esau. He exchanged, he cast aside the opportunity to carry the covenant of God with his father Isaac. So we'll come back to this, this idea of of exchanging our birthright. So this morning, we're looking at the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You'll remember that the foundation of being geared for growth in grace, the foundation is the fact that we are not under condemnation when we know Christ is our Savior. But the power that we have of being geared for growth in grace comes through the ministry, the present ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
to God's people. And so understanding, growing in our understanding of the indwelling Holy Spirit this morning, we move forward into verses 9 through 13. So picking back up in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Continue on in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We talked last week about how verse 9 is the key verse for these two weeks. Understanding, giving context to the terms here. And this morning, we touch back at verse 9 here, where we understand the indwelling Holy Spirit is our evidence of being truly alive. He, in his ministry to us, is our evidence for being truly alive. See that again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Again, see the work of the triune God, the full trinity here in a person's salvation, in, the, in, in God dwelling within the believer, right? Talks about the spirit, talks about the spirit of God, talks about the spirit of Christ. Now, this doesn't, isn't meant to confuse which person of the trinity are we talking about, but this shows the intentionality, the essence, the same essence the same mission of the, of, of the Trinity, the triune God himself of dwelling within his child. God is fully invested in relationship with his children. To speak of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us speaks of it taking up permanent residence, literally expressing a settled, permanent, penetrating influence in our lives. Without the Holy Spirit, we are not born again. This is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, one of the, the, the righteous men of the, of the Jewish people of the Sanhedrin, who comes and says, we believe that you have come from God. Because no one could do the things that you have done unless God is with him. And Jesus just like, okay, let's stop it right here. No one will see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. And, and goes on later in their conversation saying, referencing back to Ezekiel, the spirit, just as the wind, you can't tell which direction the wind's coming from or where it's going, what it's going to do. So it is with a person born of the Spirit of God. Without the Holy Spirit, we are not born again. It's, uh, 
But remember what Romans 8 is showing us here, okay? Like this soccer cone, or sports cone. I Personally, it's a soccer cone. Um, remember how we talked about this, that, that you might look at this and say, and, and you put something within this soccer cone, and it's, it's sitting within this soccer cone. Let me find something to put within this soccer cone. Okay. So we've got this... Uh, object within this soccer cone. And if you're looking at it from this perspective, you're like, well, I can see how it got in there. I mean, look at this. It's a big gaping opening. Obviously, it just like was put right in there. And and somebody else looking from this direction, they'll say, well, that was kind of hard. How do they squeeze that into that soccer cone? Well, I guess that's how it got in there, right? Looking at it from a different perspective you're going to be getting a different idea of how that object entered into this cone. Romans 8 is giving us God's perspective on salvation. Romans 8 is giving us God's perspective, a God's work on bringing someone to Christ. And from the sovereign perspective of God, and I'm not saying by that, okay, it's the right perspective. No, that's not what I mean. We're being told that no one is born, no, no one will see the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again, unless they are regenerated, recreated, remade by God himself. But yet, at the same time, we're told in other parts of scripture, we must believe, we must trust, we must receive, we must accept, we must choose, which is true as well. Romans 8 is giving us God's sovereign, mighty perspective on salvation, on walking with God. From God's perspective, he regenerates, he recreates, he brings rebirth. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. As I mentioned last week, a man-centered idea of thinking only of what we do to be saved is incomplete. God regenerates the believer in conjunction with our trusting in Christ and saving us from our sins. Our assurance of salvation is not about what we did. It's not about, you know, the situation. And I'm sorry, I I dealt with this a lot as a youth pastor, okay? Talking to a parent, and, and and this is how oftentimes the conversation would go. Well, my child's not living for the Lord at all, seems to have no conviction of sin, um, doesn't want to have anything to do with it, tells me he doesn't even believe in God anymore. But I'm just so glad that when they were this age, I, they prayed to receive Christ as their Savior. So they're in. What we're being told from God's perspective here is, if a person does not have the Spirit of God dwelling within them, they do not, they do not have a relationship with God. And so, again, from God's perspective, we have this. So it's not about something that we do only. But it's a relationship. Next week, we'll look more at what that might look like. As we're told, God's spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. And I'll tell you this, it makes a difference. For instance, 1 John tells us, as describing the, the desires and the, and, and the workings of God within his child, there's a growing disappointment 
with sin. There's a growing hunger for God's word. There's a growing desire for fellowship with other believers. But it's not like each believer should have some specific manifestation of the Holy Spirit either. Because it's a relationship between two people, two persons, if you will. It's a relationship between that person and the Holy Spirit himself. Two distinct personalities. Still, we can tell, and as I said, we'll, we'll look at that more next week. When we're good friends with someone, they improve our lives in what's important to us. And the Holy Spirit does gear us for growth in some concrete ways. And so we look here in verses 10 through 11, we see the indwelling Holy Spirit brings us life so that we might truly live. He brings us life so that we might truly live. It says, but if Christ is in you, another way of talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. When he talks about the body is dead, he's talking about the, the, that we are, when sin entered into the world, each of us became a ticking clock or a timer, if you will. We are destined for physical death. And each morning that we wake up a little bit older, we recognize that a little bit more. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the moment we enter into this world we begin to, and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. But yet we're told here, it doesn't say the Spirit brings life. We're told that the Holy Spirit that indwells us is life. He is life. In the same way that the grave could not contain Christ, we have God's life, gener- life-generating spirit within us who will also keep us alive eternally. You can see how it is that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our eternal inheritance, which Ephesians 1 tells us about. And it tells us that it's because of righteousness. And this is speaking of the righteousness of Christ that is credited to us when we receive Christ as our Savior. And notice that the Holy Spirit twice is credited with raising Christ from the dead. And for that reason, he is just reinforcing the doctrine of the fact that he will also give life to our mortal bodies. But but recall that when the, when the New Testament talks about eternal life, it's talking about an eternal quality of life. It's not this truncated or, or compartmentalized thing that we do in the Western Christianity where we think, okay, I'm living normal life, and one day I'll live eternal life. 
right? And so when I see, receive Christ as my Savior, I get this um, uh, free pass to heaven. And I put that in my religion drawer and close that up, and I'm like, whew, good. I've got things taken care of after I die. The New Testament talks about an eternal quality that our life takes on when we receive eternal life. It's, that's why we call it living large, everyday, eternal life. A life with an eternal quality that starts at the moment that we begin a relationship with God through Christ and spans into eternity. Like, like death can't stop it from continuing to exist. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6.14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And in 2 Corinthians 4.14, he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And yet, as I've said, we have the opportunity to live eternal life now because he's giving life to our mortal body. Recall what Romans 6, 4 tells us, that we are buried with Christ, we are raised with Christ to a new life that we live now. I had this picture in my mind uh, and through studying this and preparing this, and it was giant slave ship, a giant slave ship that every single person that is born into this world is on. And we're not born to the top deck. We're not born to the crew. We're born to the slave lower deck. We're born sitting on a splintery, old, rough wooden bench chained to the oars destined to row for the rest of our lives. We're rowing the boat to the destination of our master and that destination is the port of death. Once there, we remain in death chained to our position of slavery to death. What does it matter, though, if you, if you think about someone living in this condition, living dead or, or, or eternally dead? That's why some people, you know, to somebody that, that lives such a sad, meager existence, they'll, they'll speak of death as being a mercy. And, and it's this mentality that religion just speaks into and a fatalism speaks into to say, well, just, just try really hard now and, and maybe things will get better. Maybe death is better than this. That's why Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam does perfectly fine in destitute, sad existence of reality. But in receiving Christ as your Savior, God sets you free. He breaks the chain that holds you to the oar. 
God who raised Jesus from the dead has broken those chains, paid your release, paid your debt that held you in slavery. Now, instead of being forced to spend the rest of your days below deck, chained to the oars, you're able to walk in the sun, feel the breeze of freedom, and life on your face. Life itself has taken on a completely new meaning. The boat that you're on has taken on completely new meaning. And like the sun and breeze envelop you day after day, you're able to walk in relationship with God. Your dreary existence has become a pleasure cruise with God in whose hands are all the fullness of joy, we're told. And even though you're still traveling to the port of death, it's no longer a destiny of destruction for you, this physical death that you're moving toward. Instead, it's an opportunity to step off the boat, continue in relationship with God in new adventures, no longer limited to the ship of physical life that you're presently limited to. This is what it means to have a relationship with God now in the Holy Spirit, who is life. So how do we experience life in the meantime? That's what we see in verses 12 through 13. The indwelling Holy Spirit empowers us to die so that we might truly live. We read, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So let's walk phrase by phrase through these two verses here. We're told we are not debtors. If we know Christ is our Savior, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. When he talks about being a debtor here, It's defined as one who held some obligation, bound by some sort of duty, bound by some sort of debt that then holds them obligated to the debt holder. We're bound, obligated to someone, but we're no longer obligated to the flesh, notice, to live according to the flesh. If the Holy Spirit lives within us, we're obligated to live large. Notice, We're obligated to someone. We are debtors, parentheses, not to the flesh. So we're obligated, we're indebted indebted to someone. And God graciously holding holding our certificate of debt to him and Christ's righteousness is saying, okay, here's what you do to pay this off. Live large. Live by my spirit. Live in freedom. What a gracious God. We are obligated to live large, obligated to our loving Savior. Not so bad, is it? So we see in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, what is meant here is kind of fuzzy. What it doesn't mean is if a believer lives according to the flesh, then they lose their relationship with God and they're chained back to the oars again. This does not jive with the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it could refer to the fact that living according to the flesh indicates that the person is not in Christ. 
And in other words, it's kind of looking at it from the different angle. If you're living according to the flesh, you're still chained to death. Much as like Romans 6 asks, how could we who died to sin still live in it? But secondly, it could mean also if we as believers are living according to the flesh, we are going to be brought to a place of death. Speaking of the consequences that come with sin or speaking of the dying to self that is going to happen in the course of the Holy Spirit working within us, out of love for us, maybe with us kicking and screaming. But the rest of verse 13, though, provides us with how our relationship with God is intended to progress. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Living our full life potential in Christ requires a death to self, requires a death to the power, to the temptations of the flesh. As Galatians 5.24 tells us, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And as Jesus himself tells us in Mark 8.34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I love this quote. There is a kind of life which leads to death, meaning just a physical life. It's going to lead to death. And there's a kind of death that leads to life. Meaning for those who know Christ as their Savior to crucify their flesh. And live large now, indwelt by the Spirit who is life. To put to death means to kill the lies of temptation with the truth that sets us free. Notice the relationship between what we're being taught here. The Holy Spirit brings us life so that we might truly live. And also the Holy Spirit empowers us to die so that we might truly live. This is consistent in New Testament doctrine. Remember from Romans 6, you have, it's been done, you have died with Christ. Therefore, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Or Ephesians 4 tells us, you have put on the new self. Now put on the new self. Or as we were reminded two weeks ago from from our missionaries, Mr. Reese, from Colossians 3, 3 through 12, I was so glad that he went here because this is where God has like had me meditating on for some reason for the last two weeks in my devotions from Colossians 3 within verses 3 through 12. Notice how it's been done for us in Christ. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But yet we're called to put it into effect in our daily lives. What has been done for us in our positional righteousness before God. In verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And verse 8 says, you must, but now you must put them all away Anger, wrath, malice, 
slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because it's been done. The rest of verse 9. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And once again, so make it happen in your daily life. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. God's indwelling Holy Spirit has brought us to life And at the same time, he calls us to die so that we might live large now. There's an intentionality to growing in in Christ in our fight against the sinful flesh. To quote Martin Lloyd-Jones again, we have to pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is, then you have really Notice in our verses here, it is done by the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Can you see how he's called the helper? As Galatians 3.3 tells us, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So it's not about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make myself, you know, again, I'm going to snap myself with a rubber band every time I think of it. Or I'm going to starve myself. Or, But we do have spiritual disciplines by which we are pleading with God, work within me. I, wanna, I want to cultivate my heart to be fertile ground for your grace, praying to him, fasting, Bible reading, Bible study, Bible memorization, fellowship, accountability. These are all spiritual disciplines that by his Holy Spirit makes, as I said, our hearts fertile ground for his grace to change us, to grow us, to mold us, Discipleship, seeking counsel, allowing us to to take out the lies that we believe and have someone help us replace them with truth. Let's think back to that slave ship idea, right? When we come to know Christ as our Savior, we are set free to truly live it means we're no longer in, chained to that oar of sin. That, that ship becomes a place where we can enjoy relationship with God out on the top deck, in the sun, in the breeze. The chains are broken. We're free to stop rowing to your old master of sin. You're free to show your certificate of debt paid to that slave master. You're free to climb the stairs 
from the dark, damp, lower deck and stand on the upper deck of freedom and in pleasure, the pleasure in Christ. But you must put to death by God's Spirit the deeds of the body. Stop rowing and start walking. And like the powerless slave master and crew, shame and fear and familiarity scream in your face, get back to the oar. Get back down under deck. What are you doing up here? Shame says, don't you remember what you did? Don't you remember what was done to you? You don't belong up here. But it's a lie. They tell you that you belong in the rough bench getting splinters while wearing away the hands that you have on the oars. They tell you that you don't belong in the sun, that life isn't a pleasure cruise, but a dreary existence on the way to death. Who will you listen to? Shame from what you've done or what's been done to you? Or lies that sin has no consequence? Lies that little sins don't harm your relationship with God or bring bondage. The way that you were raised on how to be a man or a woman and how it's supposed to look like, if it's contradictory to walking in righteousness, you need to shed it. Praise God for his still, small, consistent voice of love that calls us away from the oars again and again to put to death the deeds of the body. He calls us to the freedom that comes from daily repentance. So where are you today? Walking the deck of freedom or choosing to sit at the oars of gossip or lust or pornography or angry outbursts or greed and materialistic driven decisions or choosing daily repentance. I don't belong down here. I'm in Christ. Think about Esau again. Represents perfectly life according to the flesh. Trading his birthright. Trading what belongs to him for a bowl of soup. Our birthright, if we know Christ is our Savior, if you've recognized that I cannot save myself, but Christ paid my penalty of sin, and by asking forgiveness in His name, God gives me His righteousness, and I can walk away from this oar of sin and shame, and I can walk up on the deck and begin living with God right now. That's your birthright. Hebrews actually tells us in Hebrews 12, 15 through 16, see to it that that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up that causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. Many become defiled. And that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
Your birthright, if you know Christ as your Savior, is to live free. Does that take accountability? Likely. Does it take counsel from someone that can shed the light of God's word on the things that you've believed? Likely. Does it take discipleship? Likely. And we're here. We as shepherds, we as small group leaders, we as pastors, we as friends, we are here to help each other live life on the top deck in Christ. Let's bow our heads. Praise you.